Father, I give you thanks for the beauty of this day, for the sunshine after the rain, for the fact that <clears throat> as we feel the warmth of the sun, we recognize that that is in some ways symbolic of the warmth of your love for us, that which brings peace, that which brings joy, that which brings hope. Father, we ask you to speak to us clearly today through your word. From Genesis through Revelation, we have God's word for God's people. And Father, I pray that we'll have ears to hear and hearts to understand that your Holy Spirit will quicken us and enable us to focus on what it is that you are saying. Father, I thank you for each one in this room today, uh, representing many different uh, uh, walks of life and many different sets of problems and needs, and yet we're here as one. The Spirit of God is amongst us to accomplish his purpose and to help us to love one another and to share in one another's burdens. And so, Lord, may that be true of us. And we ask that you will minister today in uh, each class uh, of the Sunday School Hour and in the service this morning. In Christ's name, amen. If you'll turn to Exodus chapter 24, I'd like to read beginning at verse 1 down through verse 11. Then he said to Moses, Come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and seventy of the elders of Israel, and you shall worship at a distance. Moses alone, however, shall come near to the Lord, but they shall not, they shall not come near, nor shall the people come up with him. Then Moses came and recounted to the people all the words of the Lord and all the ordinances. And all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words which the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. Then he arose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain with twelve pillars for the twelve tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the sons of Israel, and they offered burnt offerings and sacrificed young bulls as peace offerings to the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins, and the other half of the blood he sprinkled on the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people, and they said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do, and we will be obedient. So Moses took the blood and sprinkled it on the people and said, Behold the blood of the covenant, which the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Then Moses went up with Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel. And they saw the God of Israel. And under his feet there appeared to be a pavement of sapphire, as clear as the sky itself. And he did not stretch out his hand against the nobles of the sons of Israel. And they beheld God, and they ate and drank. A bit of an odd passage in some ways. Moses has busied himself now for days, even weeks, and ultimately months, climbing and reclimbing and reclimbing again Mount Sinai to hear the word of the Lord. And the Lord's presence remains on the top of that mountain for weeks and weeks and weeks. Moses has here been commanded now to do something very unusual, whereas it's just been Moses going up the mountain and there was this, this fence, as it were, line of stones or whatever was the demarcation that was put on the ground there over which the people were not to pass onto the mountain. But now God 
changes the rules just a little bit and says that 73 other men may come onto the mountain with Moses. And so the moment comes when these 74, including Moses, will go up the mountain of God. And I think they went onto that mountain with, with excitement, but with also fear, except for probably Moses, because this is the first time they'd been able to step across that barrier and to begin to go up that mountain where they'd, before they had only seen Moses go up and disappear into the cloud. Now these men will not go into the cloud, but they will go onto the mountain. We don't know how far up the mountain they went, but they certainly all went partway up the mountain. But you'll notice when they were able to do this. We, we just read in the first eight verses of Moses coming back and giving to the people what God had said, building an altar and then the sacrifices being made on the altar, the blood being sprinkled on the altar for its consecration, and then sprinkled on the people for their consecration. We could, if we've studied a lot of religion and, and looked at the various foreign religions of the world, uh, primitive, uh, animistic religions and so forth, we, we could view this in the same way, but it, it is not to be seen that way. Although the blood was real blood put on real stones and, and, and symbolically scattered over the people, it represents the cleansing work that Christ would ultimately do. And those people receiving that blood as it came flying through the air and splattered on their clothing, as gross as that may sound to us, and, and of course the vast majority would not receive it because they would be too far away, because there's two million of them. But, but the symbolism was that, the God, that God was giving the blood of sacrifice to cover their sin and to impute righteousness to them. And these 73 men who went up there with Moses had to be consecrated by the blood before they could ascend that sacred mountain. They had to have righteousness imputed to them before they could have an encounter with God. And as I was thinking about this, it reminded me of Jesus' words to Nicodemus. In effect, he said, you must be born again. There's no way you're going to ever see the kingdom of God unless you are born again. And, and of course, this blood being, being, being thrown out across the people was symbolic of that. Even though those weren't the words spoken at that time, it's, it's symbolic of this. Because we always have to remember that although I believe at least the scripture is progressive in its revelation, that Adam and Eve in the garden didn't know what you and I know today about God and about his purpose and, and about his plan. And that Moses didn't know what you and I know. Because he did not even have the New Testament. He didn't even have the Old Testament except the books that God was inspiring him to write. And so we have the whole revelation of God. So, so we understand it. But the symbolism of God is the same because God is immutable. As we're told in the New Testament, Jesus Christ the same yesterday, today, and forever. And, and so although his revelation increases as time passes, he himself in his character has not changed. And the, the symbolism, I mean, Christ's death was symbolic, right? Uh, he died for us. And as we believe in that, we become born again. And so as the people of Israel believed in what Moses was doing as the sacrifice was made on their behalf, they in effect, were, were in righteousness, was imputed to them. And, and so these men could go up that mountain 
because their sins had been cleansed in the eyes of God. And so 74 men were standing on the slopes of Mount Sinai when they experienced a theophany, a manifestation of God in some form. The form is not described here. It simply says they saw God. What does that mean? Because the scripture also says no man has seen God at any time. How can you see God but never see God at any time? You know, almost, it sounds like, you know, a, a conundrum of some sort. Uh, but what we're, what we're talking about here is, of course, a manifestation of God in a form in which his glory was veiled. Because God's glory has to be veiled. If God would reveal himself in, in all of his fullness and glory in our human flesh, it would vaporize us. And we'll talk a little bit about the brilliance of the light of, of God a little bit later. But in some veiled form, God manifested himself so that they knew it was God that they were seeing. They had all experienced the presence of God before, as had all of Israel. But they had not even seen any form. And I, I thought we'd look back at Deuteronomy chapter 4, which recounts that for us and makes it very specific. In Deuteronomy chapter 4 at verse 10, we read, Remember the day you stood before the Lord your God at Horeb, which is Sinai, when the Lord said to me, Assemble the people to me, that I may let them hear my words, so that they may learn to fear me all the days they live on the earth, and that they may teach their children. And you come near, and you came near, and stood at the foot of the mountain, and the mountain burned with fire to the very heart of the heavens, darkness, cloud, and thick gloom. Then the Lord spoke to you from the midst of the fire. You heard the sound of the words, but you saw no form, only a voice. But now they're seeing a form. The form is not described to us. Generally, the form of God is not described in Scripture. About the only time we can... Imagine the form is when it specifically says the angel of the Lord and they see an angelic form. But it doesn't even say that here. So we don't know what the form was. But they perceived a, a, a being standing. And the scripture tells us they were standing on a pavement of, of, of transparent sapphire. Now the word sapphire uh, comes from the Hebrew word here and probably does not refer to sapphire as we know sapphire. Because the, uh, in that part of the world at that time, sapphires were not known. It was probably lapis lazuli, which is a dark blue stone which was very widely used in jewelry throughout the ancient Near East at that time. And, and it's very similar in color to a good sapphire. So that's probably what they're, uh, what they're seeing here, is this, this beautiful transparent blue. Uh, pavement upon which God was standing. And what's very interesting about this is if you go to the book of Ezekiel, which we won't do today, but if you go to the book of Ezekiel to the 10th chapter there and, and you, you read the vision that Ezekiel had and it's very similar. He talks about the brilliant blue that had to do with the throne of God. My own imagination it tells me that when we stand in God's presence, the colors are going to be just beyond anything we can even believe. Just a brilliant array. In fact, in the, in, the, in the book of Revelation, the word referring to God's throne is the word iris, 
which in the Greek means the rainbow, a rainbow of colors that will be uh, a part of, of God's throne and of his glory. And, and I think we'll just stand there and totally, totally dazzled by the brilliance and the colors that will become radiating out from God. I, I think every sense that we have, you know, taste, smell, sight, hearing, all of that, will be so much more acute and so much more fulfilled in heaven. Smells you can't even believe. I mean, intoxicating smells. It won't be intoxicated, of course, but I mean, that kind of thought. And, and color, I mean, the whole thing is going to be amazing, I'm, I'm sure. And, and God just gives little teeny glimpses here and there. You know, gives a little glimpse to the men here. Gives a little glimpse to Isaiah. Gives a little glimpse to Ezekiel. Gives a glimpse to John. A glimpse to Paul. And just enough down the line so that we know it's there. We know something about it. But God has not thrown the whole thing open. But that will happen when we pass from this life and we leave these bodies behind and we're given our new body which can stand in the presence of God and in the unveiled glory of His light. To strengthen their faith and inspire them to enthusiastic obedience to God and cooperation with Moses, God gave the 70 elders this vision. Why would He do it otherwise? Were they so good that they get to have a vision and all these two million other people can't have a vision? No. They were the leadership. And they were the ones who would choose to listen to Moses or not listen to Moses. They were the ones who would lead Israel to follow God or to not follow God. And so God brought them up and gave them the exposure here to his, just, just a glimpse of his glory. And apparently, all, all we're told here in, at the end of verse 11 is, and they ate and drank. <laughs> I mean, it seems kind of incongruous here. And they beheld God and they ate and drank. No detail is given. So what we can, I think, assume here is that they participated in some kind of a covenant meal analogous to the communion which we experience uh, <coughs> once a month or whatever. Uh, I think this, this meal, whatever it consisted of, and it must have been something God provided miraculously, even though we're not told that, but uh, no other provision has been mentioned, at least, in Scripture here that this meal symbolized their total submission to the covenant of God and their complete dependence upon God for sustenance in spiritual life and in physical life. I mean, it, it, was, it was a meal of commitment taken in the presence of God. Just as we take communion, we take communion in the presence of God. We participate in the blood and the body of Christ in the presence of God, indicating our oneness and our dedication, our commitment to the one who is our Savior. Verse 12 of uh, Exodus 24. Now the Lord said to Moses, Come up to me on the mountain and remain there, and I will give you the stone tablets with the law and the commandment which I have written for their instruction. So Moses arose with Joshua his servant, and Moses went up to the mountain of God. But to the elders he said, Wait here for us until we return to you, and behold, Aaron and Hur are with you. Whoever has a legal matter, let him approach them. Then Moses went up to the mountain, and the cloud covered the mountain. And the glory of the Lord rested on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it for six days. 
And on the seventh day, he called to Moses from the midst of the cloud. And to the eyes of the sons of Israel, the appearance of the glory of God was like a consuming fire on the mountaintop. And Moses entered the midst of the cloud as he went up to the mountain. And Moses was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. Some of us are not real enthused if we commit ourselves to a whole day of fasting. <laughs> 40 days and 40 nights is a long time. And there are people today who go on such fasts, but there aren't very many who do that. After the 70 elders and Aaron and his two sons, Nadab and Abihu, had eaten the covenant meal in God's presence, they all came back down to the camp. Now, they had not gone into the cloud. They had gone partway up the mountain where God met them. He certainly and somehow burst forth, and, and they knew to stop there, and that's where they saw God, and that's where they had this, this covenant meal. And then they came back down the mountain. Can you imagine the story they had to tell? To their family, to their friends, to anyone who would listen, they'd say, we saw God, and this is what we saw. This is kind of a buzz, I think, in the camp for quite a while after that. And I think what it did was to put the elders another step higher in the esteem of the people. The people had more reason to listen to their elders now because they had seen God, whom the people had only seen in the sense of this boiling cauldron on the top of the mountain up there, and whose voice they had heard. Soon God called Moses back up the mountain. I don't know if Moses had special mountain climbing gear that he had to don every time or what, but uh, I, I think he went by pretty much the same route every time, so he kind of knew where he was going and the best way up the mountain. It was time now to put the commandments in stone. As I mentioned to you last time, we often have the idea that the very first time the commandments were given was in stone. But as we have seen, as we've studied through this passage, that isn't so. Uh, God gave the commandments to Moses orally. And Moses came down the mountain and uh, spoke them to the people orally. And Moses began to write the information down on papyrus. But now God is calling Moses back up the mountain to give them to him in stone. The people had received them from Moses. They had heard the words which God had spoken. In fact, they had said, let not God speak to us, but you tell us what God said. But now they're going to have them from the very hand of God himself. From now on, God's eternal word will be in their midst. As you know, certainly you've read Exodus and, and the other books of the Pentateuch and on beyond. Those stone tablets will be placed in the Ark of the Covenant. And the Ark of the Covenant will always be there in the Holy of Holies of the tabernacle and later of the temple. And that's where those stone tablets would be. So the eternal word of God was in their midst, carved in stone. Why did God do that? Why did God carve them in stone and, and give them to them to have there? Well, there probably are many reasons, but the two most outstanding reasons that came to me were, first of all, so that they would have God's inerrant autograph in their midst. So if anybody started to think, well, no, they, that's not really what the commandment says. It says this, that, and the other. They can go back and read the commandment. <laughs> right there, carved by God. This is what it says. There is no doubt about what it says. Nobody could distort it. 
it wouldn't be, you know, transmitted from father to son, from father to son, and, and in the transmission get distorted. But it would be there in solid rock to be read as God had carved it. And then secondly, uh, I think it was given to them in stone so that they would be reminded that the eternal word of God cannot just be something that passes in this ear and out the other side and doesn't stop anywhere in between. That it has to be carved in their hearts as it was carved in the stone. Having the stone of God there in their midst in the Ark of the Covenant did not make them a godly people. What made them a godly people was when that word which was carved in stone was then transferred to their hearts and carved here, where it would change their lives, where it would guide their thoughts, which would make them then God's people. I think one of the best definitions of God's people is that the word of God is carved in their hearts, that the word of God is embossed on, on our very being. When God's word fills our hearts, when we know God's words well, it shapes our thoughts. It shapes our words. It shapes our actions. And when we do, which I am mean, sure every one of us does every day, at some point in time we react to something in the flesh. I mean, that's kind of the natural thing to do, right? Somebody ticks you off, why, you know. But there is a check there. And that check there is the Word of God that's been hidden in our hearts in which the Holy Spirit then uses to slap it up, upside the head. Say, uh-uh, that's not how you react in this situation. That's not the way you manifest the love of God. If you don't know the Word of God, what's the Holy Spirit going to use? I, I mean, God doesn't normally plant the Word of God in your heart if you haven't studied it or read it or heard it. And so that's why we've got to be committed to it so that the Holy Spirit has the tool to use to awaken our minds and our hearts to truth and to cause us to be obedient people. It's important, I think, that we obey God not by some kind of outside conformity. Well, you know, many churches, and, and this is what many of us have rebelled against uh, down through the time, you, you go back to, oh, go back 50 years or more in American history, and many of our quote, fundamental churches had a whole list of do's and don'ts. This is what good Christians do, and this is what good Christians don't do. And as long as you conform to that, you could consider yourself a good Christian. And many times it was things like, you know, you don't go to a bowling alley because people smoke in a bowling alley or whatever. Or you don't do this, you don't do that. And, uh, you know, it doesn't really have anything to do with the Word of God being implanted in the heart. What, what we need to do is be obedient to God because of an internal compulsion. The internal compulsion of the word used by the Holy Spirit. I do not put myself in what could be viewed as a compromising situation because the word of God tells me to abstain from all appearance of evil. I don't say, well, it isn't going to hurt me to go do this thing or to be in this place. Well, maybe it won't but it could hurt or offend another believer who, seeing you there, thinks, whoa, I mean, Christians really aren't very different from anybody else, are they? And, and you know, it, it, the internal compulsion of the Word of God will cause us to shy away from those things which would not be honoring to God or uplifting to God's people. Let me read a couple of passages, one from the Old and one from the New, that talks about this in 
a word of God being planted in the heart of God's people. Jeremiah 31, verses 33 and 34. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach again, each man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and their sin I will remember no more. God has carved his word on their hearts. And then from 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 2, You are our letter written in our hearts, known and read by all men, being manifested that you are a letter of Christ, carved for, cared for <laughs> by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on the tablets of the human hearts. And such confidence we have through Christ towards God. Not that we are adequate in ourselves to consider anything as coming from ourselves, but our adequacy is from God, who made us adequate as servants of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter, that is, works, kills, but the Spirit gives life. But if the ministry of death in letters engraved on stones came with glory, so that the sons of Israel could not intently look at the face of Moses because of the glory of his face, fading as it was, how shall the ministry of the Spirit fail to be even more with glory? As God takes his word and embosses it on our lives, our hearts, so that we live for him, he is glorified. The church becomes the glory of God in this world as the church is in conformity to Christ as the church lives according to the Word of God, not according to our attempts to distort the Word of God, to make it say what we want it to say, so we can do what we want to do in the flesh without feeling condemned by God, which is what an awful lot of churches try to do, and many, quote, Christians try to do. But what does it say, really? What does it mean? And bring our lives into conformity to it realizing probably that the desires of the flesh are going to be in opposition to what God is saying. So having that word carved on our hearts is the critical thing for making us God's people. I, I think so many people today in the churches of America who don't look any different from John Doe, you know, unsaved person out there in the street, it's because they don't hide God's Word in their hearts, and so they don't know how to live any differently. Uh, the, the, the Spirit of God doesn't have anything to reach them, to cause them to recognize that this behavior, this attitude, this thought pattern, or whatever it is, is, is not honoring to God and is not going to bring glory to His name. That's why I have so much immaturity. I mean, what to me is so incredible is, is somebody who, quote, was saved 40 years ago, and they lived like they were saved three hours ago, you know, uh, as if they hadn't learned anything for in 40 years. And that's usually because the Word of God has not been important to them and, and they have not hidden and not let God carve it on their hearts where it would actually change their lives. 
Moses goes back up the mountain, but not with Aram, Aaron, Nadab, Abihu, or the 70 elders, but with Joshua only. Joshua, as far as we know, never been on the mountain before. But now it's Joshua's turn to go up on the mountain with Moses. And Moses ordered that the elders remain behind, that they were to govern Israel, and that if they had any problems that they couldn't solve, that they were to check with Aaron and her, H-U-R, and that these two men would be sort of in Moses' place as Moses was gone up the mountain. Her was apparently the leading elder. He probably was amongst the 70 who went up the mountain. He's the man you remember who, when the Amalekites had attacked Israel and Joshua was down there fighting him, it was, it was her along with Aaron who held Moses' arms up to give the victory to Israel. So her was committed to the things of God and to godly leadership. And so he held this position of authority. Now what's interesting is, God calls Moses up the mountain. But Moses goes up that mountain and sits down below the cloud and sits there for six days. Six days he sits there waiting for God to say, come on into the cloud. I mean, Moses wasn't just going to barge into that cloud without God's invitation. On the seventh day, God invited Moses to come into the cloud, into his presence. What was God doing? <laughs> was God saying it's kind of like putting Moses on hold while he went to some other part of the world to do something he had to do? Or was he busy trying to get his uh, Rolodex in order so he could give the commandments in correct order? Or, you know, what was... <laughs> no, obviously it didn't have to do with God. It had to do with Moses. It had to do with Israel. It had to do with the fact that God orders all things according to his plan and it's up to us to conform to his plan, not to try to push our agenda off on God. Oh God, we have decided by the board of elders that in June, we are going to have a revival from the 15th to the 30th. So we ask, we, we require you to be here <laughs> and to pour out your spirit on this people from the 15th to the 30th, because that's our plan. Now, God comes when God chooses to come. And what we need to do is be aware, the board of elders, you might say, needs to be aware when God has chosen to come, so then their plan, their agenda, can be set according to God's agenda and God's plan. Joshua. What's Joshua doing for six days with Moses there? Well, I think he's giving Moses comfort, companionship, someone to pray with, someone to talk with. Joshua's a lot younger than Moses, but I think they developed a real bond for those six days as they waited together there on the mountain. And then when Moses was called up in the cloud, Joshua remained right there. Can you imagine the position Joshua held here? Moses had something to do. He was up the mountain listening to God and doing whatever God had for him to do. The people were all down in the plain down below going through the normal day, uh, days of life, the affairs of life. And here was Joshua halfway up, neither in the cloud or on the plain. And he was there for 40 days and 40 nights while Moses was in the cloud. Did Joshua bring a sack lunch up, you know, for 40 days and 40 nights? Did Joshua have any idea how long he'd be on the mountain? I think God met him as God met Moses, I, not in the same exact way, but, but God provided for him and, and, and sustained him during those days. I think Joshua, during that time, was becoming a man of prayer. He was in an apprenticeship there on the mountain, because one day he will assume the leadership of Israel. 
One day he will be in Moses' sandals, so to speak, and he will lead the nation of Israel in the conquest of the land. And he had to be trained somewhere sometime. And I think this was part of that training. He was alone on the mountain. He could see the people down below, couldn't see Moses up in the cloud, but he had no one to talk to except to God in prayer. It must have been a, a real training time for this man, Joshua, there on the mountain. Scripture tells us Moses was 40 days and 40 nights in God's presence on the top of that mountain. Why? What took so long? You know, the implication here in the passage is not as Cecil B. DeMille's had it, that Moses went up top of the mountain and all of a sudden this big flame of fire comes whipping out of the clouds and whoosh, burns the letter into the rock, you know. The implication is God has already carved it in the rocks up there. And so, what's Moses doing up there all that time? How long does it take God to give Moses Ten Commandments in stone? Well, certainly the process was all part of making Moses more and more into the man of God that he was to be to fellowship in the presence of God himself. Uh, Jesus would say, my meat and my drink is to do the Father's will. I, think, I don't think Moses was in agony up on the mountain there, starving and, and great thirst because he had neither water nor food because God was his food, so to speak, there. God met his every need. I'm not saying he didn't get hungry, but God sustained him in his strength there. And I really don't think Moses was in any hurry to go, hurry to go down off that mountain. Because if you are God's person in God's place at God's time, although we're told to fear the living God, I don't think that if, you, if your heart is right, that when you stand in God's presence, it's, it's a time of nail-biting and knee-knocking and wishing this thing would get over. I, I think it's a glorious time. Look at the disciples when they walked with Jesus. I think they loved that walking off with Jesus into the wilderness and, and, and sitting on the hilltop listening to him uh, teach and so forth. I, you know, it was a joy. It was a peace. It was, it was a little bit of what glory is going to be. And I think it was that way for Moses. And it was all part of shaping Moses' character, making him into the man of God that Moses yet needed to be. And he isn't going to be perfect, right? He's still going to go down off that mountain, and when he hears that the, uh, that the Israelites have decided to go off and do something else, he takes, I mean, the very stones that God has carved and breaks them. Moses had quite a personality. And later on, he's going to strike the rock and say, must I bring water out of this rock for you? I mean, that's pretty audacious to say, must I bring water out of this rock for you? Moses? Is bringing water out of this rock? He wasn't perfect, even though he'd been 40 days and 40 nights in the presence of God. He was still a man. And James talks to us about faith and, and what it means to have faith. And, and he refers to Elijah. And we know that Elijah was able to call fire down out of heaven to consume a soaking wet altar and sacrifice. I mean, how many of us would dare to go out and do, and do that? God, send a lightning bolt out of heaven and zap this or that. But Scripture says, Elijah was a man such as we are. But I think we have to also recognize on the practical side of things, God is giving Moses a whole lot more than just Ten Commandments. He's already given those to him. He's giving him now the instructions that are corollary to that. And then what we find in chapters 25 through 31, at least he was giving him that, which was 
the tabernacle and all it was to be comprised of, uh, the priesthood and how that was to be chosen and operated. All these details are being given to Moses as he is up there on the mountain. And remember, Moses didn't have a little laptop. What'd you say now, Lord? Oh, <laughs> Moses had to take it into this computer. And Moses had to hide it in his heart so that when he went down off the mountain, he would be able to sit down there with a piece of papyrus in his hand and a quill and be able to write what God had told him up there on paper, so to speak, paper. The 17th verse in this passage, let me just read it again. And the eyes of the sons of Israel, in, and to the eyes of the sons of Israel, the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a consuming fire on the mountaintop. I think God gave us this verse for two reasons. First of all, that we might understand that the people didn't just say, oh, well, Moses and Joshua up the mountain, let's go fishing. You're going to go fishing in the plain of Sinai anyway, or whatever. But that they went out there every morning and they intensely looked up the mountain to see where Moses was and where Joshua was and what was going on up there on the mountain. And I thought they were, I'm sure they were wondering, why is Moses and Joshua, why are those two men still there? Why is Moses not in the cloud yet? Six days he was outside the cloud before he went into the cloud on the seventh day. So the people were engaged in this too. They didn't know what exactly was going on, but, but they were still intent on what was happening here. They didn't go off and start deciding they wanted some other kind of a God until Moses had been gone for a long time and out of their sight. But I think, more importantly, this verse is given to us so we might know that, God, that Moses didn't just decide to walk up into the fog at the top of the mountain and have a hallucination. I mean, this is not Muhammad here, you know, who's smoking hashish and sitting in a cave and, and having a, you know, coming up with bright ideas about Allah. But the glory of the Lord was still being demonstrated with awesome power on the top of that mountain. It was not a one-time thing, just bam, boom, crash, smoke, fumes, and all this kind of stuff for one day, and it was all gone. I mean, it was there for days and weeks and months. The power of God was manifested up there on the top of that mountain. And the fact that it was supernatural would be illustrated by the fact that if there really was a conflagration, you know, a natural conflagration of that intensity on the top of that mountain for that long, the whole top of the mountain would have been melted off. But it wasn't, which helps us to understand that this was a supernatural demonstration of the glory of God. The glory of God was seen by the Israelites, as the scripture says here, as a consuming fire, as a devouring inferno. This wasn't a little bonfire on the top of the mountain. This was a blast furnace. I don't know how many of you have ever witnessed, you know, a great open hearth furnace where steel is produced, but I mean, we're talking about something of even greater intensity of that and this, this raging inferno on the top of that mountain. Burn and burn and burn and burn. And it caught Moses' eye, so he went over to side to, um, to see what this was all about. But now God is manifesting himself in a raging conflagration that engulfed the whole top of the mountain and the smoke rose to the very heart of heaven, we're told. That blaze represented God's glory. And I think it represents God's glory in many ways. I've listed some of them there. It portrays God's judgment. And I gave a passage from both ends of Scripture 
which illustrates this, and, and you may remember a few years back when we were talking about Sodom and Gomorrah. In Genesis 19, verse 23, the sun had risen over the earth when Lot came to Zoar, and the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah brimstone and fire from the Lord out of heaven. He overthrew those cities and the valley and all the inhabitants of the city and what grew on the ground. I mean, it was a conflagration down from heaven. Just like a, a, a heavenly celestial blowtorch. <sighs> Glory of God came down in judgmental fire upon that city. And as you turn to the very end of well, almost the end of Scripture, at the very end of the 20th chapter, you have one of the most important passages of Scripture concerning eternal damnation. In Revelation 20, verses 14 and 15, where it says that death and Hades, or hell, were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he is thrown into the lake of fire. Eternal judgment of God. Whatever this lake of fire is, whatever those words mean, all of those who would not bow the knee to Jesus Christ were to be cast into this place. And of course, I know there are certain denominations who will say, and, and then they were extinguished. And they were just blotted out and gone forever and, and no consciousness was to exist anymore. But, and, and to me, that seems reasonable, that seems rational, and, and to me it might seem right. But unfortunately, that's not what Scripture says. Because as you go back to Matthew and to the Gospels, you'll read statements which make exact parallels. Eternal life, eternal death. I mean, the, the, the Greek wording is exactly parallel there. In, in, implying that as life goes on eternally, so condemnation in hell goes on eternally. It, it's not something that just you're extinct, extinguished, as Seventh-day Adventists and others believe. But, but it is an eternal state or condition. Now for us in our day and the way we live, we might think, that's incredible. How could God do that? But we have to remember, you and I have a sense of the passage of time. And you can think of yesterday, and you can think of tomorrow, you can think of last year, you can think of 20 years ago, and it seems so long ago. But you have to remember, in eternity, it's a state, it's a condition. There is no time. There, there's not a passage of time. I know it's hard for us to even understand how that can be. But it, it's just a condition, a state that one's in. And so someone who is in eternal hell isn't going to sense the fact that there's 10,000 years of this gone by and jillions more to go. Whew, how am I going to do this, you know? No, there, there's not that sense. It's just a sense of the state of being completely separated from God in, in this condition of, of punishment, whatever all that will imply. I, our minds cannot comprehend it. That's why a lot of people like to reject the whole concept of hell altogether. I think I mentioned this before. I had one person who came, visited my Sunday school class one time <laughs> down in Castro Valley because I was teaching in after class. He says, you mean you believe in hell? And I said, yes. He says, and he walked out, you know. I thought he was going to have a conniption fit right there in the room. But, you know, a lot of people, that's, to them, it's inconceivable that that could be. And I will have to admit, in the flesh, yeah, I can't see how it can be either. And why would God do that? But Scripture teaches it. And this is our authority. Not what I feel. 
Now what I think is right, and that's where theology gets right on the rocks, is when people start saying what they think and what they feel is, is, is the way it's got to be. You've got to go by what God says. An honest approach, an honest hermeneutic of the Word of God, and that's what we have to go by. Even if it seems repulsive to us, we've got to go with it. God will let us know someday why that's so, and we will understand it, but our faith has to be in the fact that God is perfect, God's love is perfect, God's justice is perfect, His mercy is perfect. Since all of these things are perfect, it's got to be right, even if we can't conceive of why, how, how it could be, because we are imperfect. We don't have that kind of understanding. Next week, I'll finish this. We'll talk about the other couple of explanations or understandings of this fire up there and, and then move on into the 25th chapter.